All right. Can everyone hear me okay? All right. Excellent. What's that? Yeah. Um, okay. So I am, uh, as he said, I'm Matt Feinstein. I'm a cardiologist here. And the reason I'm here is I do uh, about half of my time clinically is spent taking care of people with, uh, with HIV, specifically cardiovascular disease prevention, risk assessment, and treatment. And the remainder of my time is on research related to cardiovascular complications of HIV. So I'm really excited to be here. I want to thank John Fair and Paul Volberding for, and Donna Jacobson and everyone else for setting this up. Um, so these are my disclosures or lack thereof. And these are the learning objectives for today, which I'll let you look at for a second. So, you know, you'll have to apologize for my reductionist approach, as I think maybe as cardiologists we tend to do. But um, I really just want to focus on what, why, and how. So the what is pretty straightforward. I think you all know a fair bit about that. But that's what's going on. What's the epidemiology of cardiovascular complications of HIV? But then why? Why is this going on? And then how can we best prevent and treat cardiovascular disease in HIV? So this is the one pure epidemiology slide. Um, and these are from data that, uh, these are from actually US-wide mortality data um, where we looked at proportionate mortality. So that's of the people dying, what proportion of them are dying from cardiovascular diseases. Um, the green is the general population. The blue line is the inflammatory polyarthropathy population. So rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, et cetera. And then the red is people with HIV. And so this is from really essentially over the past 15 years. Um, and as you see in the general population, and, poly and inflammatory polyarthropathy population, the proportionate mortality from cardiovascular diseases is declining. Better screening, better treatment, and really um, better implementation in a lot of ways. In HIV, quite the opposite is occurring, and we've seen about a threefold increase in proportionate mortality due to cardiovascular diseases over the same time period. So first, I'm, I, you know, this talk is really going to be broken up into, I'm not going to cover every single type of cardiovascular disease, but really focus on atherothrombotic complications, so atherosclerosis, thrombosis, and related events, so particularly MI, but also stroke. Um, and then the second part of it, we'll be looking at heart failure and myocardial dysfunction in general. So um, I'm going to Go ahead and open your polling. And the question is, uh, after adjusting really for relevant covariates, how does the risk for MI compare for HIV-infected versus uninfected people? Um, is it the same? Is it a little bit lower for HIV, a little bit higher, 50% to 100% higher for HIV, or you know more than 200% higher for HIV? So uh, I'll give you guys a few seconds to fill us out. Yeah, so good. I didn't have any pre-specified music requests. Okay, pretty good. Um, so, you know, I, I think the correct answer is 50% to 100% higher for HIV um, based on data we have up to this point, that's the correct answer. But in fairness, the, the 10 to 20% higher, that may be true for some people who get treated and suppressed 
right away um, going forward. So, but truthfully, it really isn't about the 50 to 100% higher risk uh, for HIV-infected people to have MIs. Um, so where do we get these data from? This is uh, really one of the seminal studies, and this is taken from the partners cohort in Boston, where they looked at MI rates across different age groups for people with HIV in blue and uninfected people in green. And really, as you can see, across the age groups, people with HIV are having MIs far more commonly. And this really only goes away in older age groups. And that's potentially a result of several different types of biases, including survivorship bias. But uh, even after adjustment, there was about a 1.7-fold uh, greater risk for myocardial infarction among people with HIV. And then a very reasonable question might be, what about risk factors? You know, how much do common cardiovascular disease risk factors have to do with this MI risk? And, you know, certainly some, of course, but uh, this is from uh, another pretty seminal study from the Veterans Aging Cohort. And um, really what they looked at here is across the x-axis, you see just different strata of risk factor burden. So people with very few risk factors, you know, generally healthy people all the way on the left, and then people with more substantial risk factor burdens as you go to the right. And really you see across the risk factor spectrum, um, people with HIV, which these are the gray, represented by the gray box, have substantially greater risks for acute MI compared with uninfected people. And those are the purple X's here. And really, I mean, the main thing driving statistical significance here is just the absolute, um, the absolute number of people having MIs. Obviously, at low risk, there are very few MIs, so it's tougher to tease out a difference there. We also, uh, in this study, and then in several subsequent studies, they've looked at HIV-specific covariates. You know, is is uh, and it's re really one of the fundamental things we look at in cardiovascular epidemiology and epidemiology in general. If you're seeing an association between a disease state and an outcome, you also want to see is there a gradient there? And certainly, we see that in HIV. Um, worse virologic control higher risk for MI, and lower CD4 count, also higher risk for MI among people with HIV. And now I'm, I'm a cardiologist. We tend to focus almost exclusively on the heart, but um, I should mention stroke, uh, stroke rates are also higher among people with HIV. That hasn't been studied in as great of detail, but this is again from the partners cohort, and they found really across most age ranges, um, stroke rates were substantially higher among people with HIV, and this is after adjustment for demographics and common cardiovascular risk factors. So why is this going on? And, you know, I think it takes, it's helpful to take a step back and think about what is an MI. So just quick show of hands, the coronary arteries, um, I'm going to give you guys three options. Do they run along the epicardial surface of the heart? Do they run along the endocardial surface of the heart? Or do they run along just through the middle of the, uh, of the myocardium? So who says epicardial? Raise your hand. Okay, you guys are pretty unaggressive hand raisers, I can barely see them. Um, who says endocardial? Okay, a couple. And who says just in the middle of the myocardium, they go right through, the main coronary arteries do. Um, okay, so it's really, there's three main coronary arteries. They run in the epicardial surface of the, uh, surface of the heart. You know, they run in the interventricular groove and the AV groove. So they, what they do is the main coronary arteries, they start on the outside of the heart, and then they just give way to smaller arteriolar 
branches that then dive down into the myocardium. And that supplies your heart muscle with the blood and the oxygen it needs to pump. And the reason I say all this, this has major implications for what, what is an MI, what is heart failure. Um, and what is an MI, I, I would say the simplest way to think of it is basically a clot on top of a plaque. And oftentimes it's an unstable plaque in the coronary arteries that um, is filled with a lipid-rich inflammatory core and ruptures. And uh, occasionally there's also plaque erosion events, but the basic idea is you have this unstable plaque, it becomes increasingly unstable in kind of a non-linear fashion, and then on top of that is superimposed a clot, and that fully blocks off the artery. If the artery is blocked off, you don't get blood flow distal to there, the heart muscle dies. That's a heart attack, and that can ultimately produce heart failure. So why do I say all this? Um, as I pull up this slide. So these are data from the MAX cohort, and they looked at coronary artery plaque among uh, people with HIV, and then uninfect, uninfected controls matched on several risk factors, including behavioral risk factors, and they found a much greater coronary plaque burden among people with HIV, particularly soft plaque. And the reason why that's important is soft plaque, that's the really highly inflammatory, lipid-rich plaque, the type of plaque that may actually rupture, whereas calcified plaque tends to be a little more hardened, um, oftentimes a little older and more healed, and that tends to not be the type of plaque that's going to you know, quickly rupture and cause an event. This is from a pretty cool study they did using FDG PET imaging. And all this is, is FDG PET, it basically, it images arterial inflammation because macrophages take it up early during the formation of atheromas. So this is looking at, uh, what they did in this study is they looked at aortas from people with HIV and uninfected controls. And these are obviously images just taken from two individuals, but they were largely representative of what they found, which is substantially greater inflammation throughout the aorta for people with HIV. This is a longitudinal section and then this is a cross section. So there's more plaque, you know, not only in the coronary arteries, but also in the larger arteries, there's more, uh, rather there's more inflammation, quite a bit more. So this is a key slide. I'm not testing you on this. And in fact, um, I, I was probably a little too easy in my pretest question. You guys had something like a 98% correct answer rate, um, which, which, you know, it's a little bit embarrassing, but in any case, this slide is, uh, this is really an important slide to look at because this goes through the key mechanisms involved in atherothrombosis and MI. And the truth is we actually do have a pretty good understanding of what's going on now in HIV. We have a good understanding of the why for atherosclerosis and thrombosis in HIV. So um, in the setting of HIV, even when it's well controlled, there's quite a bit of microbial translocation, as Turner talked about, immune deficiency, viral replication. All this drives chronic inflammation, chronic immune activation. And that's, I mean, the reason I condensed this all into one slide, there are quite literally hundreds of studies looking at various surrogate markers of inflammation and atherosclerosis and HIV, various surrogate markers of, um, of atherosclerosis um, and carotid studies. And anyways, a, a, you know, they, they've, key points that they've shown is 
high levels of IL-6, high levels of CRP, C-reactive protein, and also lipopolysaccharide. Different inflammatory markers are considerably elevated in HIV, and they reflect this uh, chronic inflammation and immune activation. And then what happens downstream from that, there's increased clotting, lipid metabolism is messed up. Um, there's quite a bit of inflammatory cell infiltration of the arteries, uh, the large arteries, the middle-sized arteries, even the arterioles, and there's immune senescence, all of which ultimately contributes to atherosclerosis and MI. Now, one of the questions I get from my colleagues, certainly in cardiology, and I think is, is a question a lot of people wonder is, what about the meds? Is this just the medications contributing? And I think, you know, historically we thought, uh, we thought certain types of antiretroviral therapy, particularly some of the older, uh, more toxic ones, were driving a lot of this risk. It turns out, you know, their contribution is limited. There is some contribution, um, but regardless of antiretroviral therapy, and even for the newer uh, ARVs, there's, there's still quite a bit of residual risk. And I think this is best reflected in uh, Priscilla Shu's cohort, where she actually looked at elite controllers. So uh, you guys know this better than I do, but people who never really mount a substantial peripheral, peripherally detectable viral load, despite not being on medication. And she looked at elite controllers, compared them with uninfected controls, and they had significantly greater subclinical atherosclerosis as measured by carotid intimate media thickness, so thickening of the carotid artery. Um, and this was true across various strata of cardiovascular risk. And certainly we know from the SMART trial, from a study that looked at various types of mortality, including, um, including MI rates, interrupted ART was worse than uninterrupted ART, certainly for HIV period, but also for MIs. Um, the MI rates were almost double for people who had interrupted ART versus uninterrupted ART. So we know a lot about the why for atherosclerosis and, and thrombosis. We don't know as much about the why for heart failure. And I actually think this is a really exciting area of research and an increasingly relevant area because it really represents the final common pathway of a lot of, certainly a lot of cardiovascular diseases, but also a lot of metabolic, cardiometabolic diseases. Um, and we're seeing more and more of it really in the general population, but also in HIV. Um, so a lot of what we know about heart failure and HIV is informed by some recent studies in the VAX cohort, which again, it's, it's, it's a very large cohort. It's giving us some excellent uh, high-level epidemiologic information, but it is 97% male and it is veterans, and they used administrative codes for heart failure. So these are not adjudicated heart failure events, which you know, some would argue is necessary given the clinical nature of a heart failure event. But in any case, what they found, people with HIV have about one and a half fold greater risk for heart failure compared with uninfected people. And that's true heart failure with reduced ejection fractions. So um, pump function is diminished, but also heart failure with preserved ejection fraction where your heart failure is really due to impaired relaxation of the heart rather than an actual problem with the heart's pump itself. Um, and as we saw with MI, there was a gradient. The higher, your, um, the higher your viral load, the higher your risk for heart failure. The lower your CD4 count, the higher your risk for heart failure. And this was adjusted, again, for several potentially relevant covariates. 
So this led me to do a study um, at Northwestern where we actually adjudicated heart failure. And the purpose of this is to evaluate first different subtypes of heart failure, to understand, to be able to better tease out what are the different phenotypes of what's going on here, who has a big, baggy, flabby heart, who has a really stiff, small heart, both of which can produce the same symptoms, but due to very different pathophysiologies. Um, and so what we did, you know, with, without going into too much detail, we adjudicated it. So we actually looked at the individual charts for, you know, several hundred patients who screened positive for potential heart failure. And we still found about a twofold elevated risk for heart failure among people with HIV. Um, and this is just what we found expressed um, via Kaplan-Meier curve. And as you see, there's a pretty consistent separation of curves over time over the course of follow-up. So how has this evolved? And I, I think this is, this is very important. And this, as more data come out about HIV and heart failure, which it certainly will, we have relatively little on that. And you know, we've had hundreds of studies looking at marginal differences in carotid IMT. So I'm sure we will have far more studies coming out about heart failure. And you know, traditionally, it was thought of AIDS cardiomyopathy, a thinned out myocardium, um, thinned out and or scarred myocardium in the presence of uncontrolled virus, potentially co-infections as well, and severely reduced systolic function. Um, that is certainly still the case for people that aren't getting treated properly, but that really comprised the bulk of cardiomyopathy related to HIV early on. Um, but now as antiretroviral uptake has improved and really been disseminated, uh, disseminated worldwide, what we're seeing a lot more is we're seeing heart failure more as a sequelae of other diseases. So myocardial infarction and stroke, you know, as I discussed earlier, what happens when an MI happens, you get scar. And what happens once you have scar of your heart? You get dysfunction. Whether it's systolic dysfunction and your squeeze doesn't work, or whether it's diastolic dysfunction and your relaxation doesn't work, or whether it's a little bit of both. We're seeing a lot of heart failure from that now. And we're seeing a lot of heart failure that doesn't even occur in the setting of overt MI and is really for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which is about half of heart failure in the general population and may end up being more than half of heart failure in HIV. And there's a lot of potential reasons for that that, that we're still looking to, uh, looking to tease out. Um, so this is an almost intentionally complicated slide uh, that looks at why is heart failure going on in HIV. And I'm not gonna sit here and talk about every potential cause at length, but, but there's a lot of potential causes. There are certainly vascular stiffness, some, some antiretrovirals, um, some chronic use of particularly the older PIs, um, chronic inflammation, immune dysfunction, but also autonomic dysregulation and um, uncontrolled viremia certainly is contributing, but then there's also the potential for co-infection. So really what I wanted to first start by looking at is we know people with HIV have more MIs, are their MIs worse? Do they get more scar when they have MIs than uninfected people? And is this potentially contributing? Um, it's obviously not really something you can ethically test in a randomized prospective way in humans because you're not gonna give a bunch of people heart attacks intentionally. But um, anyways, you know, part of the underlying, uh, underlying theory behind this is the way MIs work is an MI happens, there's this initial inflammatory cascade, and then there's repair. But in the setting of all this, there's this clearance and resolution of inflammatory infiltrate. And if it takes you longer to do that, you get a little more extensive inflammatory infiltrate. So the better you clear it, the less myocyte injury there is, the less infarct expansion. 
And we know from, I, I should, I hesitate to say we know, we think um, based on small animal models and in vivo models that T regulatory cells actually help reduce infarct size and attenuate adverse remodeling um, through several mechanisms, including just improving peri-infarct neovascularization. So if one of the main coronary arteries is blocked off and you're not getting blood flow distal to that from the main coronaries, you can still get reasonable collateral flow from some of the smaller branches. Um, but in HIV, as we know, fewer CD4 uh, positive T cells, also uh, dysfunctional cells and some senescence of the cells. So theoretically, you might have the opposite. If you have less T you know, less effective T regulatory cell function, maybe you get less neovascularization, maybe you have more persistent inflammatory infiltrate, maybe it's tougher to clear, maybe you get more scar. So this is our hypothesis. And so what I did is we wanted to look in our cohort at um, HIV infected versus uninfected people who had MIs and actually got cardiac MRIs sometime thereafter for the purpose of looking at heart function, but also scar on their heart. We matched them on relevant confounders. And actually, when we looked at their angiograms, this was you know, more coincidental than anything, to be honest. But um, their extent and distribution of coronary artery disease was essentially identical. So we have, it's still a small number, but we had people with HIV and uninfected folks matched on risk factors and also essentially maxed, matched on extent and location of CAD. And then the question is, what did their hearts look like after MI? And they had a lot more scar. So this is actually to scale. This is a 17-segment model of the heart. And so basically what this is, is if this is my heart, it's sort of turned up this way. Um, so the apex is right here, and then you're going out to the base. And the darker it is, the more scar per segment. And as you can see, people with HIV had about twice the extent of scar compared with uninfected people. And this scar correlated with the areas of MI. Um, we also excluded people, by the way, in this study with non-vascular areas and distributions of SCAR. So this really was looking at SCAR that should be due to the MI and due to the CAD. So then just to talk about a couple of other areas that are, that, that are of interest, um, certainly I already talked about ischemic heart disease and MI, and that's, that's a major cause of heart failure in anyone. And maybe that's also still a major cause of heart failure in HIV. Maybe it disproportionately contributes to myocardial dysfunction. I definitely can't say that with certainty based on that study of 34 people. And as I said before, we're not going to randomize humans to get heart attacks, but um, it is something that further observational data and some animal studies we're working on, uh, hopefully I'll tease out in the coming years. Um, but also a couple of other interesting areas, coronary microvascular dysfunction and toxic damage that's more direct to the myocardium are areas of active interest and investigation. And this is a study that uh, Priscilla Shu and Sanjeev Shah, who's a cardiologist with me at Northwestern did. And um, what they did is they actually, they looked at different, they used machine learning algorithms to essentially look at different clusters of biomarkers among people with HIV who had and didn't have diastolic dysfunction. And what they really wanted to do is tease out inflammatory phenotypes. So people that had really high levels of inflammatory biomarkers, but also fibrotic phenotypes. So people that had high levels of markers that have more to do with scar, damage to the heart, and not necessarily inflammation. And essentially what they found is whether you had high levels of inflammation or whether you had high levels of more fibrotic biomarkers, diastolic dysfunction was far more common for you than people that had low levels of both.
So there's still a lot to study here. You can probably tell I'm I'm highly interested in it and excited to figure out what um, what's going on here because there's there's quite a bit of current and certainly potential future morbidity and mortality related to uh, to heart failure and HIV. So a study I, I will be starting this summer actually is um, to look at people with HIV with low CD4 counts, high CD4 counts, and uninfected controls, and probably a positive control pro-inflammatory population as well, whether it's IBD or, uh, or rheumatologic disease. And what we're going to do is get CT coronary angiography on them. So that's just to look at epicardial, CAD. So to look at LAD, circumflex, right coronary artery, so the major epicardial vessels. Um, but then we're also getting cardiac MRI with stress. So the purpose of the cardiac MRI is to look for just patchy fibrosis and scar, but the stress component actually lets us quantify the extent of microvascular dysfunction. So on the spectrum of you know, purely vascular epicardial disease, MI, to has nothing to do with the, the heart vessels and is more just toxic damage to myocardium, we'll actually be able to tease out where on the spectrum is the dysfunction coming from across different levels of, um, of immune progression in HIV and for HIV-infected versus uninfected people, period. So I think, you know, really the reason we're all here is what can we do about it? And um, I'll spend the last few minutes talking about that. And I think I'd certainly welcome questions as you guys write them down or whether you raise your hands. Um, and really the question is, how are we going to manage our patients both to prevent and then treat heart disease? Um, so let me ask you guys real quick. When you assess your cardiovascular disease risk in a patient with HIV, which of these strategy, strategies do you usually use? So one, Framingham risk equations, two, the ACC AHA ASCVD risk estimator, terrible name, but fairly recent, uh, recent risk calculator, the DAD risk equations, your clinical judgment or nothing, you don't assess cardiovascular risk. So let's do it. Okay, what do we got? Hey, okay, wow. That was, so I do the same thing, to be honest, um, but that was, uh, I think a lot of, you guys probably use it more than cardiologists do. That's, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll talk about it in a little, a little more detail, but um, essentially what we did here, I, I think, I just wanna talk a little bit about the basics of risk estimation. You guys, how many of you guys have read articles talking about C-statistic anywhere? A C-statistic for a risk estimator or, um, you know, or a different test statistic to look at, um, whether it's chi-square or something else to look at calibration. The basic idea is the C-statistic, that test discrimination. Discrimination is simply how well do you rank order someone? If I say you're higher risk than you, is the higher risk person actually higher risk? Are they the one that's getting the disease and is the lower risk person not getting the disease? So that's actually a bit crude and that's what a C statistic is based on. And actually I think probably has a little bit of inflated importance. Um, what's probably just as important is the calibration. And that is if I say you have a 7% 10 year risk for heart disease, do you have a 7% 10 year risk for heart disease? So we looked at, um, we looked at the ASCVD risk estimator in the CNEX cohort, large multi-center cohort, and essentially what we found, so white men, black men, white women, black women, this is just looking at MI. 
And the ASCVD risk estimator, that predicts MI and stroke. So theoretically, um, theoretically, we should see similar or even lower observed rates compared to predicted, but we didn't. Um, we saw that it actually predicted MI reasonably well visually for white men, um, but for black men and women, clear and substantial under prediction. Then in a different study that was recently published using the Framingham ASCVD risk estimator, they found something similar um, where the predicted risk here in red, or I'm sorry, the predicted risk here in blue was far less than the observed risk here in red, really across the risk spectrum. And then finally, there was a recent study looking at the DAD model, but also the Framingham total CVD model, which to be honest, total CVD, they looked at MI, stroke, coronary heart disease, which is more or less the same thing as MI, sort of a pre-MI. That accounted for 997 out of their 1,010 events, but they still call it total CVD. It's really just ASCVD, essentially. And, you know, they had similar findings, reasonable but probably inadequate calibration, under prediction in general. Um, but one thing I really want to point out, the DAD risk estimator and the Framingham risk estimators, they don't incorporate risk. DAD... Um, is in a predominantly non-American cohort. A lot of person years contributed from Europe and from Australia. Um, and certain Framingham is predominantly white men. Um, so those are the derivation cohorts for these models. And that's actually quite important when you think about how you're implying it, applying it, sorry. So now to just look at HIV and statins, um, I can't promise this is to scale, but we have more statin trials than we know what to do with in the general population. And in the HIV infected population, this is about what we have. We have no hard clinical endpoints. We obviously have reprieve going on right now that's looking at them, but we're still you know, in a relatively data sparse zone. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll start wrapping up in these last couple slides. I think we'll probably talk about this quite a bit more in our Q&A session. But really, what's our approach here? Um, to be honest, I use the ASCVD risk estimator. I don't think they're all that different. The different risk estimators use more or less the same covariates. The DAD risk estimator also incorporates CD4 count. Um, the more extensive version also incorporates certain types of ART, but their performance has largely been similar. Um, so to me, the ASCVD risk estimator is a little easier to use, and it was actually studied in black and white populations. So that's why I use it. And I basically consider what I find as sort of the low end of the risk estimate in HIV. Um, and really, John, you think I've got an extra minute to, to sum up? Okay. So um, I, I think a key principle that really emerged from the 2013 guidelines in, uh, in cardiovascular diseases is risk-based decisions on therapy. So, and that's a, a, a really important concept here is net clinical benefit. So what, is, what does that mean? It's just, I mean, it's simple if you think about it, it's your absolute benefit minus your absolute harm. And if the absolute benefit clearly outweighs the absolute harm, it's more favorable to do, to, uh, to do whatever, you're, whatever you're deciding on doing. So you really have to look at absolute risk reduction. You know, if you have a 0.5% risk of heart attack and stroke in the next 10 years, and statins reduce your risk by a third, and you get down to a 0.33% 10-year risk, doesn't really matter that much, right? That's, you know, your number needed to treat there is, what, you know, several hundred. You need to treat several hundred people to see a benefit. On the other hand, if you've got 
a 40% 10-year risk for heart attack and stroke, and then you take a statin and reduce your risk by about a third, you're preventing heart attack and stroke in you know, one in eight of you, which actually makes taking a statin, which has about a 5% risk of bad muscle cramping that's reversible, and that's far and away the most common side effect, that's, you know, the, the positives more clearly outweigh the negatives there. And then what about secondary prevention? This is an area, it's a bit more of a gray area. Um, Reprieve is not answering this question. So Reprieve is looking at primary prevention in a lower risk population. But the question is, what about someone who's had an MI? Do we give them a high intensity statin? Knowing that depending on what therapy they're on, you know, if they're on cobicistat, for instance, their true statin levels may be two or threefold higher than someone not on cobicistat, do you still give them the high intensity statin, knowing that in the general population, high versus moderate intensity statin is really added considerably to, uh, to incremental risk reduction? Um, I don't think we know, but I personally, in my practice, I start low with the higher intensity statins like atorvastatin uh, or rosuvastatin, and then go slowly and barring any difficulty with tolerability, do try to get to a higher intensity dose. And then the role of aspirin, there's been some conflicting data in HIV on it. Um, in the general population, we use it for primary prevention in ages 50 to 69. No reason to recommend anything different for HIV, but no reason yet to recommend anything additional. Um, and then in heart failure, we don't know yet. There, there's not been enough studied in terms of heart failure management to treat it any differently than HIV, but certainly our index of suspicion should be higher. Conclusions, I'll leave those up here and uh, I'll start taking questions and please don't hesitate to ask. And is the CRP the test Good way to find, evaluate higher risk patients. Uh, very good question. And who asked? I I don't mind if you guys would like to raise your hand because I will actually talk to you. Um, short answer: No. Uh, it's 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 less meaningful in HIV. Um, it's less uh, its discriminatory ability is is worse in HIV. Uh, it's synthesized in the liver, and uh, the chronic inflammatory state in HIV can affect how CRP is is is. Um, it can, can really affect how well CRP discriminates between risk factor levels. I don't use it at all, honestly, in, in my clinical practice. Some people do. Um, I think the, the better tests, one, just examining the disease itself. So coronary artery calcium, a CAC scan, it's, uh, it's quick. It's got about the same radiation now as a chest X-ray. And uh, can you guys raise your hand if you know what a coronary calcium scan is or, or have ordered it for patients? Okay, so, so most of you guys do. One point I really want to make clearly, and I was actually just talking to a couple other people about it, very good screening test, not a test you want to use to measure serially. And I'll tell you why. So what happens with the coronary calcium test is that's looking, as you get plaque in your arteries, 
ultimately over time, as the plaque starts to heal, as the plaque starts to solidify, and also if you're on statins, it can kind of delipidate. Some of the lipids removed and it's replaced by coronate, by calcium. So the calcium itself, knowing that you have a plaque, you'd rather have coronary calcium. But if you don't know, if we don't know whether or not you have coronary plaque at all, then it's a good initial screening test. Okay, so if you get a coronary calcium, you start someone on a statin, and then you recheck their coronary calcium, you're going to see a big increase and think you did something wrong when in actuality you didn't. Does that make sense to you guys? And that's really important. I see coronary calcium misused all the time, including by cardiologists. So I use that. Also lipoprotein A. If someone's got a family history of heart disease and they don't have fam familial hypercholesterolemia, you're wondering what's another test I can do to help me risk stratify to see, you know, is there more here than meets the eye? Lipoprotein A, it's a it's a highly inflammatory lipid particle that also has structural homology with some procoagulant um, molecules and can lead to quite substantially higher risk of MI and stroke. Um, do you recommend estimating risk in younger HIV-infected people? Yes, with a huge caveat, which is the risk estimator is really heavily weighted by age. So it's going to be... I don't want to say artificially deflated, but artificially deflated among young people. Um, that said, certain risk factors will still boost it, smoking, diabetes, et cetera. But, but I, I think it's safe to say that the risk estimators are going to give you a reasonable baseline. You can use that, and I think you can pretty solidly think their risks are certainly not lower than this, and in actuality, they're probably substantially higher. If someone can't tolerate statins, what's the approach? First, make sure they can't tolerate statins. So, um, <laughs> no, and, and I mean that. They've, they've done studies. There's obviously a lot on Google about statins. Um, in non-randomized trials of statins, about 20% of people actually get really significant muscle symptoms from statins. In randomized control trials where they've also included placebo groups, about 15% of people in the placebo group get really significant muscle symptoms. So really statins do cause significant muscle symptoms in about 5% of people. Proximal muscle symptoms, you know, shoulder girdle, proximal thighs, it's not subtle, it's reversible. You stop it, you wash out the statin, and usually after a few weeks you can start a different statin at a slightly lower dose and start low and go slow. And I, I would say of my patients that have an initial intolerance to statin, well over half end up tolerating some statin at some dose. That said, PCSK9 inhibitors are too expensive probably to really be generally prescribed, but that may be a future option. Zetia is, or Zetamib, excuse me, um, is pretty weak. It's, it leads to a lot less lipid lowering, but it's probably the next best option after a statin. And I think so in the scarring study, were there any, any sorting by type of intervention of the populations or was there any racial effects? Very good question. Who asked that one? I like that one. Yeah. Um, so they were relatively matched. I mean, I mean, it was 12 patients versus 22 patients. So we didn't have the ability to do, you know, stratification really. Um, we did look at people who got percutaneous coronary interventions or not. Those were quite similar between groups because I think what your question implies, which is a very good question, is are people with HIV just getting treated later? Are they coming into the ER later with MIs? Maybe. 
Um, some studies from uh, Bokhara's group in France suggest that there's actually not as much of a disparity as you would think, but. I, this comes back to the statins. Should we be more liberal in when we start statins in HIV infected patients? I need to know a baseline of what we do to, to answer that. Um, so I, I think this, I, I think um, the main concerning side effects you're wondering about, with, you're worried about with statins, primarily muscle cramping that's reversible. Rhabdomyolysis is less than one in 10,000 risk. Um, there have been some reports of brain fog, but then in really rigorously designed studies that have looked at, um, that have used neuropsychologically adjudicated endpoints, um, there hasn't really been a substantial concerning side effect um, that's common apart from the reversible muscle cramping. So I think if you think your patient has the potential to benefit from it, it, it makes sense to start statins. And I am of the mind that I think we're probably underdosing in terms of intensity. Um, we know I didn't go into this in, term, in great detail, but the, in, in cardiology, at least for secondary prevention, we have the Prove It Timmy 22 trial, which I love talking about because it's just a, you know, a classic silly cardiology trial name that's longer than it needs to be. But, but anyways, um, what they did is they looked at really high-risk people, people who have had events, and they looked at a Torvastatin 80, a high-intensity statin, versus Pravastatin 40, which is actually considered a moderate-intensity statin. And there was an additional 16% relative risk reduction in major adverse cardiac events going from the moderate-intensity statin to the high-intensity statin. So just having someone on a statin and feeling good about that sometimes isn't enough, particularly if the absolute risk is high. Granted, we don't have any data in HIV to support that. So this is all kind of a data sparse area, um, but that's my inkling at this point. You mentioned endothelial inflammation as a, what about dysfunction, endothelial dysfunction? As a result of yeah. Oh, certainly. A lot. Um, I think uh, one area I'm particularly interested in is microvascular dysfunction. There's certainly endothelial dysfunction of the coronary arteries. Um, there have been some studies that have actually been a little more null. Um, there was a study looking at aspirin versus no aspirin among people with HIV, and they looked at flow-mediated dilation of the brachial artery, which is not necessarily the best surrogate measure of, uh, of, endo of certainly coronary endothelial dysfunction. But that's an area that needs a lot more study. Um, a question. You know, for those of us who have been managing the patients for a long time and they're getting older, so the, the secondary prevention gets to be a real common clinical problem with statins. And, you know, there's, so you have a patient who's maxed out either because it's the most they can tolerate or, um, or they're on the maximum dose. Now, there's, there's two schools of thought now. The standard guidelines say you've done enough. There's another guideline that says, get the LDL, and if it's, if it's above 70, hit them with a PCSK9 inhibitor. And that's tempting, but these people are already on polypharmacy. They're paying multiple co-payments. And this is another difficult thing to get done. And although it's not a difficult drug to take, it's probably very safe. But I mean, what, what's the right answer? We, know we have studies on PCSK9s, and they really do impact clinical advance, and we're seeing so many of them in these patients. Should we be pushing for these new drugs in these patients or just kind of leaving them on the best statin? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I, first, the, the middle ground to all this is 
if you still think they benefit from additional LDL lowering um, and they're on a max tolerated statin dose, azetamide can be a reasonable adjunctive therapy. Yes. But but yeah, yeah, I uh, that's that's a cop out. That's not answering your real question. So to answer your real question, I think certainly. Um, I, I think there's a lot of excitement about PCSK9 inhibitors. There's still a lot we don't know. Um, so far in the longer-term follow-up studies, now looking several years, we don't really see a lot of um, a lot of resistance develop over time, which is reassuring. But one thing uh, that's important is is you know we know we've looked at FH patients, really high-risk secondary prevention can potentially get um, PCSK9 inhibitors covered. Um, if your LDL is 70 and you're on rosuvastatin 20 or 40 or atorvastatin 80, there's a good chance you are familial hypercholesterolemia spectrum because, um, you know, your LDL may have started at 200, which, which really from a phenotypic standpoint is already FH. Um, I'm excited in the future about it. I know Priscilla Shu is doing some work on PCSK9 inhibitors. I think we'll learn more. Whether it'll have an outsized or diminished effect in HIV or about the same, no idea. Oh, and I want, official, yeah, good question. By the way, I, I wanted to put my email up here. I live in Chicago, um, and I obviously have a lot of interest in taking care of these patients. So if you ever have a question, I'm happy to, uh, to respond. So don't, don't hesitate to email me. Uh, fish oil, sure. <laughs> you know, we, we don't have great data on fish. Sorry, we have great data on fish oils showing they're neutral to potentially helpful. Um, e eating, eating fish is better. Get, getting it from the real thing is better. We, we absorb it more that way. Fish oil can actually help with hypertriglyceridemia, but between fish oil and an actual, you know, pharmacotherapy like uh, phenofibrate that significantly reduces triglycerides, you know, if your triglycerides are above 500, I'll give you phenofibrate and not fish oil. Thank you, Matt. Thanks so much.